So we're looking at when Jesus came to church. Sounds like a silly statement to make, doesn't it? But uh, we're looking at a series of churches that Jesus wrote to and that he, I guess, critiqued. Um, he assessed where they were at and wrote to them. And in some senses, he commended them. And in other times, he um, he challenged them about where they were at spiritually and relationally. And the church that we're going to look at today is the church at Smyrna. And it was a very different church to the church that we looked at last week. But we're going through the, the series of seven letters to the seven churches throughout Asia Minor. As I said last week, the first and the last church were in great danger. The second and the sixth church, Jesus really commended them. They were a great church. And the three in the middle were fairly mixed bag. There were some good things. There were some bad things. And we'll find that as we move through that Jesus spoke to their specific context at the time that they were in. And yet, even though it was written for that context, it has value for us today. We can look at all those churches and we can, I guess, compare ourselves to them and learn from their mistakes. We can learn from the things that the Lord said was good about them and we can take those things on board and we can change where we're at in our hearts and in our in our church structure and we can, I guess, learn from the valuable lessons. So I think, as I shared last week, if we were to take all those seven letters to the churches, Catalyst would fit in there somewhere. And the Beaconsfield Baptist Church would fit in there and the Berwick Church of Christ and every church that exists would somehow reflect one of those letters, either in a positive sense or in a negative sense. And that's what this series of, of letters compels us to do. It compels us to say, well, if this church was lukewarm, are we? If this church has lost its first love, have we lost that? And as we look at the church at Smyrna, this is a difficult one because as much as we might want to compare ourselves to the church at Smyrna, in no way, shape or form do we reflect that church at all. It's, we just don't experience the things that they did. It's a very hard church to look at and say, well, what are we like in the Western culture? When you see what this church was like and who we are, we are poles apart. And it's very hard to, gra to grab hold of what they were experiencing and apply it to our lives. But I still think there's some things that we can get out of it. It's a little bit like this. Um, a lot of us men would like to think that we look like this. You know, oh, Daryl thinks he does. Okay. The reality is, Daryl, that most of us look like this. <laughs> you know what we would like to, what we would like to be, and what we are really are two different things. Now, I would love to say that we are like the church at Smyrna but we're probably not. We're in a very different context. And let's unpack this church and you'll see why. So Smyrna is the second church that was written to. So um, John had this vision and he wrote, and I guess in a, in a spiritual sense, he was moving around the seven churches and writing what the Lord said to him. And we come to the second church in this circuit today. And it was the church that society sought to crush to do everything in their power to eliminate this church through persecution, through slander. They were really a church under pressure. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, 
but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. So if we look at Ephesus today, Ephesus today is just a little village. But the church at Smyrna and the town of Smyrna is still very big today. It's got a population of about 250,000 people. So it's still a big place. Whereas if we went to Ephesus today, there's not much left at all. There's hardly any Christians. The population in Smyrna has about half the population are still Christian, more nominal Christian, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. So there's still a legacy today of those first roots of the church in Smyrna. And Smyrna was a really beautiful town. It had been destroyed and rebuilt. And when it was rebuilt, there was sort of a a congregation of architects that got together and very carefully planned out the layout of the the town of Smyrna. So it's beautiful. There's lots of um, walkways and the architecture is very, very carefully planned out. And they called it the glory of Asia. It was a really pretty town. And they were very proud about their town. There was lots of boulevards. And the way that it was laid out, laid out when you go there, you just go, wow, this was very carefully laid out. And it was wealthy because it was still on that trade route. And there was lots of culture there. It's where Homer came from, you know, the philosopher Homer. So they had this great library and there's a lot of lot of debate. Not Homer Simpson. No, come on. I saw you laughing. I knew that's what you meant. Different Homer. <laughs> And it was a place of culture where where they tried to get on top of what the world was about. And, and, and so there was a lot of worship of foreign gods. But in particular, they worshipped the Roman emperor. This was, this was the place where they built the first temple to the Caesar. Okay, And out of that building of the temple came this real parochial sense that they wanted the whole town to be known throughout Asia Minor and right throughout Europe as the place where they would worship the Caesar, where he was exalted above everything else. And of course, if you're a Christian and you're being challenged to worship Caesar, there's conflict because you've got to decide, well, are you going to denounce your God and worship the Caesar or are you going to stick to your, your truth and are you going to worship Jesus Christ as the one and only God? So the Christians were despised by the Romans because they wouldn't bow their knees. They wouldn't worship the Caesar. But the worst persecution didn't come from the Romans. It actually came from the Jews. The Jews hated the Christians. Now, I know that that, um, anti-Semitism gets a a really big play in the world. There's lots of people that hate the Jews. But the Jews hated the Christians in a very passionate way. And they made life hell for the Christians because every time the Christians would get about worshipping God, The Jews would come along and tell the Romans, hey, they're gathering in this building or they're down the road there. So they were always dobbing them in, always putting them in a place where they were fanned out. So there was a a real contention. Either the Jews hated the Christians or the Romans hated them. And when we say hate, that's what they did. They hated them. They made life hell for them. So there was this clash of morals and values and principles. It was a real, do we serve the world? Or do we stand true 
as the church. There was a real divide between the two. Now, in Western civilization, there's not much difference between the church and the world. We're not persecuted for our faith. We are not um, slandered because of the things that we believed in. We're not ostracized in the community. There's not a real definite line. But in this community, there was. If you were a Christian in Smyrna, then you were not allowed to trade. You were not allowed to buy things. You were poor. Now, I've got a teenage boy called Sam, and he always says, Dad, I'm starving. But there's plenty of food in the cupboard. The Christians at Smyrna were beggars. They had been reduced to poverty, abject poverty, the Greek word is. They had rags. They had nothing. And they were forced to beg off the people that hated them. So you imagine all of us, everything gets stripped away. We don't have homes. We don't have any clothing. We don't have food. We've only got the clothes on our back. Are we still going to stand for God? Are we still going to say Jesus is sufficient for me? Because that's what they faced. And I find it very hard for for me to say, mm, I, yeah, I wonder if we're like that, Lord, because we're just not in the same scenario. This was a church that was really persecuted. But it was worse than that. They were, they were slandered in the community. The Christians would have love feasts. They would get together and just fellowship together and encourage one another. But the Jews twisted that and the Romans twisted that and said that they were having love feasts. They were having these sexual orgies. So the natural thing would be to justify yourself, wouldn't it? To, be de- to defend yourself, to stand up and say, no, that's not us. And they were even criticized for being cannibals because of take, partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So everywhere they went, they were ostracized, they were picked on, they were slandered. Um, we're talking about a group of people that were really under the thumb. And in the world's eyes, they had nothing. No riches, nothing to offer. And yet Jesus said of them, you're rich. You guys are rich. You have everything. And yet the world was saying you've got nothing. So there's this real contention in in this letter. And Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know you're about to be abused even more. And some of you are going to go to prison. And in fact, some of you are even going to be killed for your faith. Imagine if we got a letter like that. The question that this letter asks of us, well, will we stand when it's all stripped away? Is Jesus enough? Is all our materialism when it's gone gonna gonna going to change our relationship with God. And that's what this church was faced with. So we note that, first of all, Jesus didn't have anything critical to say about this church. Like he couldn't find fault. There wasn't anything that he said was bad, which is noteworthy in itself, even though there's nothing there. That's the whole point. There wasn't anything that he could find that was wrong with them. And these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. So in every one of these letters at the start, we get just this little snippet of something about the personality and the character and the nature of Jesus. And this is that he is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, who died and came to life again. Now that's back to front, because normally we would say the one who lived and died. But this is the one that died and came to life again. It's sort of reinforcing that even though many of the people in this church are going to suffer death, death is not the end. When you have relationship with God, it's just part of life, but it's not the it's not the end of life. But Jesus was Lord over life. He was the one that conquered the grave. 
that rose again and that there was hope when we cling on to God. And we get this beautiful sense of the the sovereignty of God, even though this is a desperate situation this church finds itself in. That over and above that, that God is sovereign because he says, I know. I know your afflictions. I know about your poverty. And look, when we're doing it tough, when there's a time in our life where we feel like our back's against the wall or we're struggling with sickness or an illness and there's uncertainty or someone's you know, on their deathbed, the most comforting thing is when someone comes alongside you and says, you're not on your own. I know. I know what it's like to go through that pain. I know. And Jesus is saying, I know. I know what it's like to be persecuted. I know what it's like to be betrayed. I know what it's like to be killed and taunted. And so he's saying, I know what you're going through, but I've been through it with you and I'm going through it with you now. I know what it's like. And and to get those words of comfort must have meant so much to them in that scenario that they found themselves in. Jesus was, was saying, I'm with you. Even though you're going to go to prison, I'll be with you. Even though some of you are going to die for your faith, I'll be with you. Hang on, because you're rich. I know about those who slander you and say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. So do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, there's a bit of debate whether that's 10 literal days or whether that was was something longer. We don't really know. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crowns. You know, the beautiful thing about this is when oftentimes when you're slandered, your humanity rises up and you want to justify yourself, don't you? When someone criticizes you or or says something about you, part of you wants to go, hang on a minute, let me set the record straight for you. But Jesus was saying, look, there's falsehood out there. I know that. I know there's Jews out there that claim to be legitimate, but, but they're false. He's saying, I know you don't have to justify yourself. And sometimes we're in situations where we just need to keep our mouths shut. Let Jesus vindicate us. Let him be the one, because he knows. And at the end of the day, there was no spotlight on this church. They weren't a hill song where the world was going, rah, rah, aren't they wonderful? They were in the back blocks of the world. They were under persecution. They were trying, you know, the society was trying to crush them. There was no one patting them on the back. But Jesus said, I know. I know. And that's all that matters. It's an audience of one. You're doing this for me, and I know your deeds and you're rich. It's sort of very back the front to Western church, isn't it? It's very, very different to what we face in our society today. And and I was really challenged by this because I just felt like, well, Lord, where would I be if if society started to strip away my right to buy things at Woolworths because I was a Christian? And if I walk down the street and people were saying, well, hey, he's the pastor of Catalyst Church. What an idiot, you know. I wonder how my faith would stand up. And you could beat yourself up over that hypothetical scenario, but but maybe the day will come. Maybe the day will come in our society where that's a reality. There's a, a, a great movement, you might have heard of it, called the Voice of the Martyrs. In the 15 minutes that I've been talking, there's been three people in the world that have died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Every five minutes, somebody dies. And there's the voice of the martyrs collect, um, I guess that's what they're trying to be. They're trying to be a voice for those who no longer have one. And so they map out the world 
And uh, you can go onto their website and you can see all the different nations and, and the struggles that they have in those nations to stand up for their faith. But um, when Jesus says to them, you know, be faithful even to the point of death, he wasn't saying be faithful to the end of your life like in when you're 70, 80, 90. He was saying be faithful to the end because the end could be coming next week. So they were on, they were imminent. It was a sense in which I was going to say to you today, um, guys, some of us are going to get killed this week. I wonder how many would turn up at church on Sunday if that was the cost involved in worshipping God. And that's what these people faced. You know, it, it's a tough. And yet Jesus says that their measuring Christ was that they were rich. They had it. They had something pure and righteous and holy and so valuable and yet they're in the midst of horrible persecution. We often say about the persecuted church to pray for them that the persecution would stop and yet when you look at what happened in Smyrna, because of the persecution the church grew and anywhere in the world that there is the persecuted church it grows. That's what Jesus did when the apostles were frightened about going out of Jerusalem to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. The persecution came and it scattered the Christians down the Roman roads and out into Asia Minor and the church grew because of persecution. And there's this sort of oxymoron because we're saying we should pray to stop the persecution and yet where there's persecution, there's growth. You wouldn't wish that persecution on anybody. But could you imagine if the church in Australia began to be persecuted? What would happen? All the ones that weren't faithful would leave and all the ones that were righteous and and committed and really, you know, serving the Lord with integrity would stay. And there wouldn't be any lukewarm Christianity, would there? If you knew coming to church on Sunday meant that military could turn up and shoot you or behead you. It would change the whole scenario. So in some senses, our Western Christianity has made Christianity an easy way to live. Whereas in this culture, it was maybe a death or life type of situation. There was a man called Polycarp. He was called the Bishop of Smyrna. He was 86 years old and they bound him and they they put him on a stake. They put all the wood around him, ready to burn him. And the proconsul in Smyrna went up to him and said to him, listen, mate, you're 80, this is paraphrased, you're 86 years old, you're grey, you don't need this grief at this time of your life. Why don't you just denounce Jesus and we'll cut the ropes and let you go. And this is what he said. 86 years I have served Jesus and he never did me injury which could indicate that he was 86 years old or that he'd been a Christian for 86 years. We're not quite sure. The Polycarp goes on and he says, How then can I blaspheme my king and saviour? Bring forth what thou wilt. And what they did was they lit the fire at Polycarp's feet and a supernatural wind came and blew the wind away from him so he didn't burn. Um, So what Someone, one of the soldiers, rushed in with a spear and speared him to death so that he wouldn't eventually burn. But that's what it cost them. Now, can you imagine if someone came and took me out of here today, set me in the town square and burnt me to death? That's what this church was facing. You know, and and what did they do? 
They stayed true. They endured and they grew. And that's what I got out of this passage this week. You are rich. And yet so much of what we do in our church culture and our our life in this society is that we measure ourselves by the wrong things, don't we? If Jesus said they're rich and they had nothing material, then why are we chasing all this stuff? It's back to front. It's not God's economy. And yet we measure ourselves. We look at Hillsong. We say, aren't they wonderful? They have 85 pastors on their thing and they have this great building. And God says, it's not important at the end of the day. Yeah, they can take that all away. What's left? What's, what's, what's the nucleus of our faith? Is it really pressing into Jesus? And is he enough? Is he all sufficient for us? So we often judge ourselves by our appearance. These guys were beggars. They didn't have anything that you could say, hey, look at them. They look good. They're funky looking Christians, aren't they? They had nothing in the world's eyes, but they had everything in God's eyes. So the challenge of Smyrna is to view life through the lens of eternity. Jesus said to them, I'll give you the victor's crown. You know, this is just for a season in life. These momentary trials and troubles are going to pass and you're going to find that you're faithful unto death and then after that will come this incredible blessing. And I think there's so much that we can learn from this church. Even though we might not face death, we do face tough times in our lives. And our faith is tested, and we've really got to ask when the, when the pressure's on, when we're you know, perplexed on every side, where we're hard-pressed like Paul wrote. What, what are we going to do? Is God going to be our all-sufficiency or not? The one thing I thought about this church at Smyrna was this. I bet you they were a half-glass full church, not a half-glass empty. I reckon when they gathered together in their little huddles or wherever they were, that there was a... There was a lot of optimism and a lot of faith despite all the circumstances. I don't reckon you heard any too much grumbling about, hmm, we don't have the right songs on a Sunday morning or the curtains are the wrong colour, they should be purple. You know what I mean? I, I bet you what was most important to them in that situation were the really important things. And all the peripheral things that sometimes we get hung up on in church aren't that important at the end of the day. You know, we need to ask ourselves in the context of our church, are we the half glass full people or are we the half glass empty? Because it'll happen because this is a culture where it's easy to be critical and, you know, it's easy just to be a lukewarm person on the fringe. But you can criticize. You don't get any points for that. Or you can be a commender. You know, can come up and you can say, Stacy, it's great to see a young person on worship. Keep going, girl. That's great. Or you can say, oh, didn't like the way Stacy sung today. But that's what happens in our churches, doesn't it? We get critical over the little things. And yet when you think about the church at Smyrna, imagine if someone raised a point like that, you'd go, what? There's people's lives on the line. Why are we getting hung up on about this? It's wrong. It's back the front. And we can be the complainers or we can be the congratulators. We can be the grumblers or we can praise people. We can sympathize. Oh, isn't it great what they do? And look at a distance. Or we can be the supporters. We can stand alongside and we can we can be there at the coalface. We can find faults. Anybody can do that. And we've all done it. I'm as guilty as anyone else of finding faults in church. But it's the greater cause to find the potential in people and the potential in the church and to be the half-glass full person, isn't it? And the, and the church in the Western culture is becoming all about consuming. 
What is the church going to do for me? When is Mark going to come and visit me? Isn't that what it's become? And it's really hard being a leader in a church in the Western culture because because you can't keep people happy. You can't be you can't be diversified enough, you don't have the resources enough, you don't have the time enough to make the church what everyone wants it to be. That's the sad part. You cannot, but would we want to anyway? If God gives us a vision to do something, we go and do it and we don't compromise on that and you either join the vision or you go and find a place where you fit that an alternative vision. That's okay. But be a half-glass-full person wherever you are, in your family, in your marriage, with your children, and that's my challenge. That's what God's challenged me on this week. I always find the half-glass empty in my kids instead of the half-glass-full stuff. And as parents, we do that. Why? Because we can get away with it. And we sometimes we take our frustration out on our kids when we shouldn't. That was my challenge this week, to be a half-glass full person. And you can easily tear stuff down. But I want you to be the champion in your church, in your family, in your marriage, wherever you are. Be the champion, the cause. You know, I imagine the people at Smyrna, when you gathered around them, you wouldn't have said much because you would have been very humbled and very inspired by the nature of their Christianity. I bet you when they prayed, there was tears. I bet you when they talked about, you know, the word of God, they had this 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 richness about their study of God's word. They were, everything else had been stripped away and all that was left was what was most important. And there's a lot that we can learn from them. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this church. Lord, even though in, in my mind and my perception they're so far away from my context and our context here in Australia where there's there's freedom and there's liberty for us to even gather together and we can praise the name of Jesus without fear of someone locking us in jail or tying us to a stake. Lord, we have absolute freedom to do what we want and yet somehow that freedom hasn't generated in many cases, a devotion and a passion to you. Lord, I'm not praying for persecution, but Lord, I'm asking that you would challenge us not to do this journey of relationship with you half-heartedly. But Lord, not to allow us to get consumed by the things of this world, but to to really draw a line between being the church of the living God and following you with integrity and truth. Not being religious, but being devoted in relationship to you. Father, when I think about that man Polycarp and what it cost him to serve you, Lord, he was a man that knew you. And even when he was in his old age and could have easily compromised, he didn't. He was willing to suffer a horrible death because of his love for you. Lord, I don't know if we've got that sort of love. It hasn't been tested. But I pray, Father, that you would shape and mould our lives in such a way that if a time did come, that we would be found faithful. That, Lord, our worship for you would be passionate. That our lifestyle for you would be committed and devoted. That, Lord, that we would be Somehow, a church that may not have a lot financially or materially, but we would 
be rich in our love for you and for one another. That, Lord, when you examine Catalyst, you might say, I know of the tough things that you're going through. I know. But you're rich. Endure. Stay true. Stay the course. Endure even unto death. Lord, help us not to love our lives so much that we're so full of ourselves. But, Lord, to be servants to love your church and to esteem it highly and to be a contributor and to be a valuable part of this little community, to build it up, to spur one another on. That, Lord, we would never get to a place that we're complacent and lazy and apathetic in our faith. Lord, thank you for this little church and thank you for the ones that were faithful. Lord, the blood of the martyrs cries out for us. It challenges us to pray for the countries of the world where there's persecution, to stand up even in our own nation so that we continue to pray and be a voice of truth. And Lord, where there's politicians and people that want to compromise your standard, that Father, we would be found to be the ones rising up and saying, no, don't compromise our Christian values. Don't compromise the principles and truths of the Bible because there'll be a great price to pay. Father, help us to be the ones that will stand up and be reckoned with, to be a voice in this nation. Lord, this is not an easy part of Scripture to digest. It's challenging. When we hold the mirror up to our own lives, Lord, there's a lot of question marks. I don't know if I would stay true. I pray that my heart would be steely and that it would, Lord, but I won't know until that day comes. But I pray until that day you will shape and mould my life and the life of each one of us here to be ready, to be available, not to be compromised with the world, but to be the ecclesia, the called out ones, the true church of Jesus Christ, hard-nosed about our faith, have a steely resolve to stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ not to let falsehood overrun us, not to let slander steer us off course. But Lord, help us to press into you, to stay close to you. And Lord, I know that you know all that we're going through individually, Lord. Father, thank you that you're there in the midst of it. Lord, continue to draw us closer to you and further away from the world. Lord, help us to be a church that reflects your truth and your majesty, and your power, and your might, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.